A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to a special edition of True Crime Daily, the podcast. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. Everyone in the world of true crime has a story to tell about a case they have worked on or lived through. Some are high profile, some you have never heard of, but they are all fascinating. Today's case is about the most prolific art thief in modern history. From the mid-1990s to his arrest in 2001, Stefan Breitweiser stole 230 works of art from museums throughout Europe, worth about $2 billion. His motivation, though, was not money. Stefan was obsessed with the art and kept his collection of stolen art in his mother's house for his own personal admiration and enjoyment. His heists were simple. This is no Ocean's Eleven-like plot here. Stefan preferred to strike during the day, undisguised, using only a Swiss army knife. This incredible true crime case is the subject of a new book called The Art Thief, a true story of love, crime, and a dangerous obsession. The author, Michael Fingal, is our guest today. He is a journalist and a New York Times best-selling author. Michael, welcome to the program. I'm so excited to have you. Thanks. I'm honored to be here. You know, I have not read your book, Michael, but this case, because it is a true crime case, is absolutely fascinating. And, and I mean, I can't wait to hear the details of this. Uh, I did listen to a few podcasts in which you were interviewed about this. And I got to say that to me, as a reporter, the most fascinating thing is how you actually made contact with Stefan and ultimately got him to talk to you and how you did that. That's never an easy process. Yeah, and it's never efficient in my case either. Yeah, I, uh, I worked on this project for more than a decade. And as, as, you, as you implied, it's like journalistic catnip. There's a massive quantity of theft. There's a certain panache to his style. And then, as you alluded to, the fact that he stole for love of art, or so he said, as opposed to wanting money, makes this whole thing sort of a fascinating both the uh, true crime and psychological crime sort of the uh, tale. So you wrote him a handwritten note. That's how this conversation with the art thief started. Yeah, yeah. I like to read small town newspapers and this is including globally. And I, I speak French with, with a terrible accent, but uh, I speak it nonetheless. And I read this tiny like petite article in a in a French newspaper exactly mentioning these things, 200 thefts, $2 billion, putting it in your room. And I'm like, I'd really like to talk to this person. Every line of this article sort of engendered more and more questions. And uh, I find in this modern day and age, the most, man, I feel like I'm giving away all my secrets, but uh, yeah. I find that the most effective method of communication is one of the old fashioned ones, which is pen, paper, envelope, stamp. I don't even think my children know what half those things are. And uh, that way you're not disturbing someone at dinner if you call them on a phone or it freaks them out and like an email just gets lost in the shuffle. Um, right, so I, I sent him a handwritten note through a company that, uh, the publishing company that published his uh, autobiography only available in French and German. And uh, as often happens, as you know, being a journalist, I got no response. I waited patiently, maybe impatiently. Let's, you know, let's be honest about that. And uh, it took about eight months before Stefan Breitweiser responded to my letter with just the very briefest of, um, so what do you want, Mike? Sort of right. uh, idea. And that was the, that initiated a more than decade uh, long project. 
Uh, it's amazing because it's really all about building trust, I believe. You know, who are you going to tell your story to? Who will you trust to tell your story? My thing is always, I'll always say, okay, this is who I am. I am easy to research. You can see my entire body of work. It is available online. And if you don't like the way I do interviews or the way I come across, I am not the person for you. I, I can't sell myself as anything other than who I am. And I, I think you know, that personal approach of yours, of, of building that trust, that's honestly what it takes to get someone to tell you their story. I completely endorse your idea. Exactly. I'm, I'm the same way. I like to send uh, previous copies of my previous books and read it if you don't feel that this is uh, right. Exa exactly what you just said. You have to, I feel that uh, during a, a, a good interview is also like you have to reveal something about yourself. You can't just ask the person that you're talking to to say tell me everything uh, tell me all of your secrets i'm not gonna tell you anything i'm just gonna be a monolithic blank slate here and i believe that sort of by sharing some of these things and even in my early letters that i handwrite, i i talk about just having a family living in utah all these little things that just it seems a little bit um not a not you know germane Pertinent, to the subject right. but it but it humanizes you and you know this is like it this uh and as you said if your personality doesn't rub the person you're interested in correctly then I guess we won't talk, but. Uh. Your approach has been so fascinating because I, I, I do want to ask you a lot about Stefan, his story, what he did, yeah. but you know, there was one part that I just found so jarring that I want to get right to it. It's like, when you describe, this is after the man has been captured, he's been convicted, everything, right? You actually go to an art museum with this man. It's like, uh, it sounds to me like the most dangerous thing anyone could think of doing. <laughs> it was maybe not so dangerous, but it was morally complicated because I had this sense that Breitweiser, who, like many uh, criminals, as I'm sure you know, has a big ego, decided to share a story with me. And then once he decided to share it, uh, did it in like granular detail, which is fantastic yeah. for a journalist. But I did wanted to see, I, there were lots of questions I had about precisely his, method, his methodology, which I'm sure we'll get into. Um, and so we ended up going to an art museum together, more than one. Breitweiser, understandably, one of the most prolific art thieves of all Time is banned from most museums. So he put on this very <laughs> simple disguise of fake eyeglasses and a baseball cap pulled low over his head. And I just got this sense as I'm following him from room to room. It's like the most, it's like the most uh, amazing professor combined with like uh, something out of Ocean's Eleven where he's talking about the front of the artwork and the colors and the way the paint is applied. And then you sort of move around to the side and see how it's attached to the wall. And then you look for uh, security cameras and then you plan your escape. And I'm sitting there, this little tape is playing in my head, like, what am I gonna do? If? If, yeah, if he actually steals something, am I going to turn into the police, my, the subject of my own book? And I was like, I mean, I would have to, I think, da, da, and all these little thoughts are going through my head. I'm very happy to report to you that I did not have to make a decision in that case, although he did shoplift a museum catalog. And despite the fact that I wasn't particularly comfortable with it, I, I allowed him to get away with that. Wow, yeah, <laughs> I get, oh gosh, wow. This, he's really something. So tell me about Stefan. And you know, he didn't just steal um, the great masters. He also stole things obviously of great historic and art value, but things like revolvers. And you know, there's something that belonged to Napoleon, I think he stole. 
Absolutely. So Stefan Breitweiser says, sometimes when we're talking about this, it sounds like some ancient history or some historical uh, events. Stefan Breitweiser was born in 1971. He's alive. He's well. I did one-on-one -on -one interviews with him. This is not historical uh, recreation at all. This is basically a fairly uh, recent uh, occurrence. His last, Breitweiser's last trial was just in March of 2023, so like six months ago. So it's a very much a modern story. And ever since Breitweiser was a child, this is sort of where the story becomes sort of more complicated than a typical true crime um, tale, is that his both his parents said that he was obsessed with objects, works of art, things that just appeal to his aesthetic senses. Now, if I asked all of your listeners and uh, to like close their eyes and imagine something beautiful, I'm happy to report that probably all of us would have something different, whether it's a sunset, a lover, a Picasso, um, you know, or something yeah. from the medieval period. Well, Breitweiser specifically liked the late Renaissance and early Baroque periods. And for those of us, including me, that was that are not art experts, that is like the 16th and 17th centuries. It was just use of color, sort of every, this was before the um, industrial revolution when everything you mentioned, weapons, every piece of every object was created by hand. It had this amazing handmade feel. This was sort of what Breitweiser himself thought was the height of human civilization before machines were stamping out parts when every goblet and every medical instrument was made by hand and then oil paintings became popular. So this is a, like a, a re renaissance rebirth of, uh, of artistic style. These were the things that he absolutely loved. Was he and, was he properly or classically trained and educated in this area? Like, you know, would you call him, I, I don't know, an expert in an area or this was like, what did he do for a living? <laughs> so Breitweiser was not at all trained in art uh, appreciation and he actually had i mean a lot of his theory i mean these are theories coming from a uh incorrigible criminal but he had a lot of ideas about about people that were got phds in art history which was sort of like it tainted you like he really when he loved a work of art he felt it emotionally before it was like oh look at this balance of pose or look at this year or look at these paint strokes or look at this you know look at these look at the symbolism he would just go with pure emotion brightwires would walk through a museum he would see 99 items that he would just sort of walk by no 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 and then he would find something that would strike him his aesthetic sensibility his he called it a coup de coeur, which in French means a blow to the heart, a hit to the heart. And he would just be, I mean, I went to museums with him. I saw this in person and he described it. And many witnesses also described this. Just he would sort of like lose his mind. He would become obsessed with this piece, this work of art. Sometimes it was an oil painting. Sometimes it was an ivory sculpture. Sometimes it was an antique weapon. Sometimes it was a silver goblet. Whatever it was that grabbed him in his ineffable grabbing place, just he would get all twitchy. It was like there was electric current running between him and the art, and then he would desire to possess it. And this object that he got the coup de coeur, the blow to the heart from, wasn't always the, wasn't necessarily the most valuable, the rarest thing in the museum. It was just the thing that appealed to him. Breitweiser always said, if you're going to steal a work of art, you better love it. It's so much risk involved. <laughs> now, what was his job? I mean, this is almost hard to get your head around, but we talked earlier about how everything in this book, in my book and in this story is not based on a true story or 99% true, but 
a completely true story thoroughly vetted or as thoroughly vetted as humanly possible um Reitweiser averaged one art theft every 12 days for almost a decade that is incredible it takes many criminals like months or years or a lifetime of planning to do one he did it like every every less than every two weeks so his full-time job was an art thief but we mentioned that he didn't sell it so what does that mean he was really an unemployed freeloader living in his mother's <laughs> attic he did not work occasionally he took a job waiting tables um or uh, some physical labor like loading trucks etc but really Brightweiser was a full-time art thief. His mother paid his, you know, he, he didn't have to pay rent because he lived in his mother's house and she, you know, filled the refrigerator up. And so he was a freeloader. He was like a deadbeat, but also a person who had $2 billion worth of art stuck in his bedroom that he shared with his girlfriend. So uh, a kind of like a all over the place, crazy uh, story, completely self-educated, read dozens and dozens and dozens of books about art art theory, art history, art crime, and was completely self-educated. But really, um, in fact, my my time with Breitweiser sort of changed the way that I approach artworks and walk through museums. He really was like a emotional, emotion first, uh, intellect second when it came to beauty. And I don't think that's such a bad idea. I don't think anybody when they're looking for a lover is like, well, you know, you must be this, you must be this. It's more like a feel thing. And then you can say like, oh, you have to be this tall or this whatever to have this job or wear this color shirt or have this uh, type of hair. But really, attraction is uh, is is such a ineffable emotional thing. And he 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 emphasized that repeatedly as we walked through museums. He also sounds very French, you know, <laughs> that is, isn't that like the essence of the, the French approach to life? I think, I think you're just describing a Frenchman. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, the only thing that made him non-French was that he doesn't drink alcohol, so no wine. We, you know, mm. we went out to some nice lunches and had Coca-Colas, which is very un-French. But yeah, yeah. Uh, he lives in the Alsace region, which is northeastern France. It's where Germany, Switzerland, and France all meet. So it's a very much a polyglot uh, part of the world. But yeah, that's. I really love that comment. I think I'm gonna have to steal that. I think so. It's funny how people who like know nothing about it will hear something and say, well, I, I get all that. It just sounds French to me. <laughs> Hi, this is Amy Poehler here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. I, I'm curious about his girlfriend because she was a big part of the ploy and the way to get the artwork all stolen. I love the way you describe her that she wore vintage Chanel and Dior, my kind of gal. I love <laughs> this. So so tell me about their relationship and then how this all started and what his, was his, too many questions I know, and was his first heist alone or with her? So Bright, uh, Stefan Breitweiser met his girlfriend Anne Catherine Kleinklaus when they were both about 20 years old, just had graduated high school. Now. I spoke to a lot of people that knew this couple and every person said that this was an unhealthy, uh, just about the most toxic relationship that you can imagine. But also 
they said one more thing when it came to Stefan and Anne Catherine, which is that they were truly in love with each other. And you know, one knows that love can make you do crazy things. Now, before they met, Breitweiser had done some petty crime, some shoplifting. Uh, he actually worked as a guard in a museum for several months, which was invaluable for his knowledge on how to subvert uh, museum <laughs> security. And he stole one belt buckle from a museum. But really, it was something about the combination of Breitweiser and his girlfriend, Anne Catherine, once they became a couple that just sent him into the stratosphere. Anne Catherine had had no criminal background, but they became this sort of Bonnie and Clyde. Now, Anne Catherine herself did not get overwhelmed with works of art like Brightwise did, but she had a great eye. She had aesthetic sensibilities. She was also French. And, <laughs> yes. um, and I think that she, at least at first, just enjoyed the thrill of what they were doing, which was taking works worth millions of dollars and putting them up in their bedroom. And in the middle of this bedroom, you know, you can, you can almost imagine eventually it has more than 200 works of art surrounding them. In the middle of the bedroom was this amazing antique four poster bed. And often uh, the result of a crime, having a new piece of art was quite romantic. And there was a, like, you know, stealing and stealing and stealing is one thing, but also I love the fact that and there's like this love affair as as off-putting uh, as it may be, or as, as unhealthy as it may be, uh, the love affair between Breitweiser and and Catherine Kleinklaus was real and lasted for more than the whole of their stealing spree. Amazing, and you know how he expressed to you that it was kind of um, erotic for him to be mm -hmm. able to make love with his girlfriend in front of all these stolen pieces. And then when you describe how excited he gets when he discovers the piece, I mean, there's a lot here that's sounding, um, well, not very balanced, obviously. Like, is this like classic kleptomania or does he suffer from something else I think that you may have referenced? So the question, in other words, what's wrong with this guy? Yes. I mean, <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, when it comes to what's going on between our ears, that is a complicated landscape. <laughs> now, <laughs> over, you mentioned how important it is to build up trust over the, you know, after we wrote letters, we uh, we had a tentative lunch in which I wasn't even allowed to bring a notebook or tape recorder. And then I eventually agreed to grant me interviews. And then it went even further where we went to museums together in places from which he stole. And then he even gave me signed written permission to see his psychology reports and they were fascinating reading. I saw five different bits and pieces of five different psychology, psychological reports. No one could really figure out what or, or pin a diagnosis on him. I don't want to get too into the weeds, but kleptomania, a really uh, you only care about you're obsessed with thieving you don't really care what you steal and it's usually the hallmark of kleptomania is that after one of your thefts there's this letdown steeped in shame and regret you sort of like wish that you didn't have to steal brightwise was completely the opposite of that he was very particular as i mentioned about what he stole he was euphoric when he stole it he never felt guilty or even wanted to apologize for what he stole so uh, there was no great uh, diagnosis that fit him but one interesting thing that all five of the psychologists said was that, you know, I, I was suspecting that he was pretending to like art, but they really said that he truly seemed to be captivated, carried away by works of art. 
not to get again too far afield, but there is a syndrome that is unofficial. It's not in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of uh, Psychological Disorders, the famous DSM, but it's called <laughs> Stendhal syndrome, named after another Frenchman, the writer Stendhal, who in the uh, late 1800s, he went to um, Italy and in Florence, he saw these frescoes on a church ceiling and sort of he basically said he lost his mind. He thought he was going to have a heart attack. He had to run out of the um, church in order to recover and like lay on a bench. And there was a the head of the psychology department uh, at the main hospital in Florence noted that there were occasional people that seemed to be overwhelmed in front of works of art, uh, most especially the Statue of David, which is in Florence. And she came up with the name Stendhal syndrome, again, unofficial, but when Breitweiser read, uh, when he researched Stendhal syndrome, he said, that is exactly like my coup de coeur, my, my blow to the heart. He said he felt for the first time in his life, like, ah, oh, there's other people that have what I have. Again, that's uh, the best I can come up with for a psychological diagnosis is Stendhal <laughs> syndrome, unofficial, but fascinating, overcome with craziness in front of a work of art that you love. Okay, it's a passion without question. Uh, I'll, I'll go with you on that one. Okay, so explain to us how Stefan could steal these pieces and get away with it for so long. Because when I think, and I do believe there are degrees of museums, like there are some museums like, you know, like the Musée d'Orsay, the Louvre, the Met, it'd be very hard to steal from them. You know, obviously not impossible because there are, are a lot of art thieves out there. But then there are what I think are these second and, and third level galleries or homes that have beautiful pieces that I often wonder, it's like, geez, <laughs> wouldn't it be easy to steal from here? Where, where did he fit in as far as the kind of place he, he chose? Yeah, how could you possibly steal from 200 different museums without getting caught? Yeah. I will try and explain this. First of all, Breitweiser was very savvy about where he stole, mostly from smaller regional museums across seven countries in Europe. Living in France, he could drive within a half day drive of many other countries. Switzerland was a favorite, Germany, Austria, Belgium, Netherlands, of course, in his home country of France, all over the place. But he also stole from Louvre-sized museums, though not the Louvre itself. And Catherine had a had a prohibition against stealing from the Louvre. She thought it was too risky, but he stole from museum, some of the largest museums in Europe. He also stole from art galleries and art fairs. And I also varied what he stole uh, mm -hmm. in terms of sculpture, paintings. And he was just able to stay a step ahead of the authorities. And I will explain to you in a nutshell how he was able to get away with it for so long. And then we can go into the specifics of how he stole, which is kind of mind blowing because they were all uh, thefts that took place during opening hours, during the day, sometimes with guards and tourists in the room, which is mind blowing. But I'm going to go past that for a moment. Now, people have been stealing from museums ever since museums opened in the 1700s. And in fact, 20 different countries, including the United States, have dedicated uh, police forces for capturing people that steal works of cultural significance or art thieves. United in the United States, we have the FBI's art crime team, 20 full time agents. Now, the way most people get caught, see, the, one of the things that museum curators do not like to talk about too much is that the purpose of a museum 
is to bring you as close as possible to an outstanding work of art without you feeling like there's security apparatus. There's a reason why bars aren't in front of paintings and there's not guards with machine guns in, in, in the rooms. It's because they want you, they don't want you to feel that there's security every, everywhere. They, you want to be able to commune with a work of art. Unfortunately, this makes museums susceptible to stealing. Sometimes the hardest thing isn't actually to get the painting or something off the wall. It is to monetize it. 99.999, yes. like less than one in a thousand art thieves do it for love. Most every real art thief, not the ones you read about in books or movies, real art thieves want to try and sell it. And you can either sell it to a crooked collector. There's plenty of them, crooked dealers. There's plenty of them where you can try and sort of like get insurance money. It's a very complicated transaction. And this is really what art police forces do. They look for people, the transaction. That is where the art changes hand for money. And that is where almost all arrests are made. A lot of times by art cops being undercover, proposing as a crooked dealer or a crooked collector. And so this is really what they concentrate on with good reason, because just you can round it up to everybody that steals uh, from a museum wants to sell it. And that's where you get busted. Breitweiser was the absolute outlier exception. He took the works of art and hung it in his room. And of course, police were tracking these crimes and figuring could one group of people or one couple be responsible for all these. And they were waiting for the moment that they sold it, but they were waiting for something that never mm. came. And that is the main reason why they were able to get away with it for so long. The actual the actual details of the pulling the piece out of the museum are fascinating, but in glo more globally, they didn't try to sell it and therefore avoided capture for almost a decade. You know, in the end, everyone makes a mistake, but uh, that, that's the main reason. So for your listeners, and those of you taking notes, if you're really gonna steal some art, don't <laughs> sell it. Okay, that is an excellent tip. And that does make sense. That does make sense as to why they didn't find him. But, but the fact that he was so prolific and at some point, one would think that in Europe, they would have like, I don't know, the museum's, you know, little urgent uh, telegraph that comes in that basically says, you know, okay, this week, this has been stolen. You would think at some point, he would stand out as a person who had been in the museum because he is the common denominator here. You would think, but he was incredibly sly in his way, in his criminality. Um, Breitweiser had a couple of uh, unusual theories of crime. First of all, uh, for every, you know, I don't, I don't, if you're, if you're, if you're picturing an art crime, you're probably picturing something from maybe the movies or something with smoke mm -hmm. bombs and coming in through a skylight and maybe, you know, you know, put, holding gu guards under uh, at gunpoint. But Breitweiser had a very strict belief that the best crime was an invisible crime. In other words, a crime that nobody knew that was happening. It was like, right. It was just like, like a magical sort like of a crime. sleight of hand in a way like sleight of hand exactly where the worst thing that he could do would be you know throw a smoke bomb and tell everyone to get on the ground and wave wave a rep weapon around so it was an invisible style and he had a, i mentioned he worked at a museum he also had an amazing sort of preternatural ability to see where all the security cameras were in a museum and note their field of vision and be able to sort of circumvent it he walked in and out of museums not just dozens of times, but literally hundreds of times. And the police could not put a face to who was doing this. He was, he, it, it was very impressive. And then the other thing 
that Breitweiser did. He had this, uh, I'll explain it in a minute. He had this expression that he said to me in French, which was that something that an art thief would never do is precisely what an art thief should consider doing. I'll give you an example. More than once after Breitweiser took a beautiful painting or work of silver out of a display case, we'll get into the steps he used, instead of running out the museum door, never run, you have to walk. He would usually sometimes hide a painting at the small of his back and cover it with his jacket, or Anne-Catherine would use her large Yves Saint Laurent purse and to put a beautiful, <laughs> a beautiful silver object inside. What they did more than once, this couple, you know, and, and art crimes are noted very quickly, often within seconds, because there's a big blank spot on the wall and a guard's coming by, you know, this, you don't have a lot of time. They went to the museum cafe with the stolen goods on them and ordered lunch and sat down. Now, just think about this for a second, Anna. If the police are called and they come running into the building, the last people they're going to suspect are the cute young couple casually drinking their soup and eating their baguette. I mean, they'll just run right by them. And this literally happened over and over again where they would like go on a guided tour. No thief would ever steal on a guided <laughs> tour. There was a museum employee who now knows what your face looks like. That's just impossible. And then they would steal it, continue the tour, go to the end when something was reported missing. It obviously couldn't have been someone on the tour because that's a person that they kept an eye on the whole time. It could be anyone else. So he subverted expectations in multiple ways, didn't sell it, sort of like whatever you think a thief would be, he did the opposite and just with that sort of kind of somewhat impressive psychological ability to read like both security systems and like the limits of human observation got away with it repeatedly. Incredible, incredible. And because, you know, when you think of going to a museum, especially if you're a tourist, if you're an American tourist in Europe, you've got a backpack, you've got a messenger bag, you're carrying a million things and it all has to be checked in. You know, you can't, they don't allow you to walk around a museum with these big bags. So it's interesting that she had a very classic French designer bag that was just big enough for some kind of a silver goblet or something. <laughs> um, and then his oversized coat. Okay, so now explain to me how they got the object off the wall into his body, his person or her bag. How did they do that? So one fascinating thing that Breitweiser told me was that he hated to be called an art thief. And now, oh, he didn't yeah, I bet he does, he, doesn't he? Poor he baby. <laughs> <laughs> he did not deny That's the American but... side of him. <laughs> He was very baby. open about all of his crimes. The statute of limitations expired. But but here's the reason, because he said to me, oh, name me a real art thief. You know, not, we're not talking about Ocean's Eleven or the Thomas Crown Affair. And the first thing that came to my mind was the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist in Boston, 1990. Yeah. One of the most famous art crimes of all time, still unsolved, uh, committed by a two-person team, two men, similar, you know, similar sized team to Breitweiser and his girlfriend, Anne Catherine. Um, but here's what the... Isabella Stewart Gardner guys did. They came at night. They were dressed in fake police uniforms. This night guards opened the door. They attacked them. They bound their faces with duct tape. They handcuffed them to pipes in the basement. So already violent late night heist. But that is not why Breitweiser hated this crime or hated to be called an art thief. It's what they did next. These two Gardner thieves, they went up to the most magnificent work in the museum, a Rembrandt seascape and stuck a knife in the canvas and carved it out of its frame. And this is basically ruining 
a Renaissance portrait. And obviously, even though they've never been found, if they are recovered, they're going to be damaged. Breitweiser believed that you could not, like to damage a painting was to like, you know, was to like stick a knife in yourself. He believed that you must be delicate and careful. Uh, I mentioned he worked as a security guard. He also worked in a frame shop ostensibly to learn how to put frames on paintings, but really to learn how to take them off. So I said, right, Riser, if you don't want to be called an art thief, what do you want to be called? And he said, uh, he wanted to be called a- Call me Stefan. <laughs> he wanted to be called a collector with oh, an unorthodox please. acquisition oh my God, really style. Yes, a collector. <laughs> so, you know, how do they do this? How do, but still, how do you get away with this? How did Breitweiser, for example, and, and Catherine Kleinklaus, how did they enter a museum? Well, they entered the way we all do, right at the front desk. They bought a ticket. Don't use your credit card. They bought it with cash and walked right in. You mentioned that and Catherine had a, uh, had a liking for designer clothes, but neither of them had a lot of money. They bought them in, they bought them their clothing used in secondhand shops, but Breitweiser, as he called it, his camouflage was to dress nicely. And he always favored going in cooler weather with a long trench coat jacket, sort of a little bit too large for him that we could hide something underneath it. So he would get, they would just pay cash, walk into the museum and immediately Breitweiser would, you know, not just look at the objects on the walls and in their display cases, but sort of take take track of the guards. Are they sitting in a chair? Some museums have guards sitting in a chair. Some of them have them patrolling. He always liked to go at lunchtime. Having worked in a museum, he knows this. Now, the thing about security guards is they're human. They get hungry. And most museums will run half the, for during a lunch break, half the guards will take lunch, half will be on guard, and then they'll switch. So in other words, during the lunch hour, there's usually half the number of guards in a museum, and sometimes there's fewer tourists as well. So he would first have to see what object he liked. And sometimes it would be in one of those classic display cases, and sometimes it would be a painting hanging on a wall. When it came to a painting hanging on a wall, as long as there was no security camera directly on it, he would make sure he would look sometimes there would be a guard visiting. He would time it every three minutes, giving him three minutes between visits. If there were tourists in the room and they had those like earphones on where they were listening to the tour, they were distracted in front of another work of art, he would think that was fine. He would take the painting off the wall, turn it over. Because he worked in a frame shop, there was either clips, nails, ribbons on the back, and he would detach the frame very carefully from the work. And then he knew that uh, he said something to the effect of, a unframed work of art is as delicate as a newborn baby. But wait a minute, it Michael. It, here's the thing. So he's taken it off the wall, and and now he's taking it off the frame. But yeah. he's doing this there. I mean, it's what is he on the floor crouching? What? Often I, it put, doesn't make often sense. Often putting it on a on a on a display table. This would take like five to ten seconds. He was very good at that, and he would leave the frame behind. Sometimes he would like to have a spot for taking a painting where he had between ten and thirty seconds of time to work with he would most paintings as you would you could see from how it's attached to the wall you literally are like hung on a hook which is just crazy it should be attached better and yeah it's very easy if you know precisely what you're doing which 99 percent of us don't because we didn't work in frame shops to remove that frame leave the sometimes he would leave the frame behind in a kind of a asshole-ish sort of mm -hmm. spot, sort of like bragging, like, look what I did. He would put it against the wall. Sometimes he would hang it, you know, hang it back up in an empty frame and he would take the work of art, which was usually say the size of a pizza box maximum, uh, and put that at the small of his back very carefully, drape his coat over it. And he and Anne Catherine would just carefully walk out of the museum. 
and right out through the entrance and no one there was just never anyone that saw them uh or spotted the, you know, spotted them quick enough and they would just walk to their car put the painting in the car don't speed away it's a terrible time to get a speeding ticket and drive slowly back to the house that they lived in carry it up to the attic and hang another work on the wall he would often pay pretty much all the money he made was uh to buy new frames for the paintings that he stole wow okay so how there were two things here first of all he's hanging all this artwork in his mother's place so there's no way she didn't know what was going on here i agree with you now i was unfortunately unable to speak to stefan breitweiser's mother or his girlfriend and katherine kleinklaus but i got plenty of depositions that they gave to the police and spoke with many people who knew them and in fact breitweiser's mother basically gave her son permission to speak with me so she's one of the only reasons why this uh this book actually came to be now you can say and for a while breitweiser did say oh i bought this at a flea market or this is not a real renaissance painting this is just a knockoff and you know even some art experts have trouble telling a good fake from a from a from the real thing and people have been fooled before but um anna i think you're correct the mother knew what was going on and i don't want to give too much away but in the end like any good icarus story you know when you do get caught this mm, is where those this is, wings will melt <laughs> those wings will melt and everything gets you know in the end the crash is just it, the, the the rise the ride to the sun is thrilling and crazily risky and then the crash is insanely hard um, to steal something for example out of a display case and Breitweiser loved Renaissance era um, ivory sculptures and especially s solid silver chalices that he, you know, he didn't drink wine, but he just loved these beautiful centerpieces for um, for Renaissance tables, beautiful objects in silver and mother of pearl and gold, all the things you could imagine. Imagine just putting them all around this room. So to get into a display case seems very difficult. Now, display cases, if you're picturing them, they're usually like a big cube of uh, plexiglass yeah. or glass. And there's usually a little panel that slides open to put things in and out. And those panels are locked really well with modern locks. And it would take you a long time to pick a lock, even if you're an expert. And so Brightweiser never picked in a, uh, a lock. This is another one of his sort of simple and yet sort of evil genius methods he carried in his pocket his only real art thieving tool was a swiss army knife that's it he didn't have machine guns and smoke bombs and you know repelling hooks it was just a swiss army knife and his long jacket and his nice clothing and his girlfriend who served as lookout and uh, if you can picture a display case the panels of the display case are sealed with each other to each other with silicon glue that's how the that's how the um corners meet each other and if you take the sharpest blade of your swiss army knife and you make little incisions on these seals vertical horizontal work along a corner so you're going three different directions if you work along a corner you can loosen up the panels just enough to open it up stick your hand through and pull the object of your desire out and because of these the display panels the panels of the display case want to be in their original position. They're sort of being, all you have to do is sort of push it back into place. You don't need any glue and they will stay that way. And so if you followed me on that, you can steal something. It's like a Rubik's cube. If you yeah. know how to manipulate it, you can, oh, I, right. Okay. I love it. Yeah, yeah, right. You can take something out of a display case while the lock is never touched. 
and you could push it back together. And often he would just take a ballpoint pen, his other two, and stick his hand in and sort of rearrange the items in the display case <laughs> so that it didn't seem like there was an empty space. Again, having worked as a security guard, he knew that after a week on the job, security um, guards stop looking at the actual objects. It's just sort of like, oh, there's all, you know, there's a bunch of spots that are filled there. You stop noticing the details. You just look at people. And so he was able to, again, to use that to his advantage. Again, take the object, put it at the small of his back, cover it with his jacket. There'd be a slight lump, but you'd have to, no security guard is going to notice a little lump at your back. And again, walk out. It still seems almost hard almost impossible to get your head around. Right, until of course he is caught and they find, well, they don't, that's just it. What happened to all the art? Like I know, you know, for our fans uh, and our viewers and our listeners who really like to hear the crime kind of from the beginning. And as I always say, when you start seeing the red flags, how was he caught? And then I'm, I, I can't wait to talk about what the mother did with the artwork. I mean, that to me is beyond that. That's heartbreaking, what she did with the artwork. Right. So museums have been in, in, in existence since the mid-1700s, about 300 years. And I spent all of the COVID uh, pandemic reading art history and art <laughs> crime books. And I feel like I can tell you that I came across no one in all my readings, in all the history of museums uh, that stole from more than 19 different museums, which is pretty impressive. This does not count the Nazis or, or armies, but I'm talking about criminals or a little gang of criminals. And Breitweiser and Anne Catherine stole from 201 different museums. So there's not even a comparison. Um, and you know, again, always during the daytime taking the paint taking the frames off or cutting his way into cases or just sort of sneaking around uh there was one time you know i'm, I'm, I'm like he's sort of like this street magician uh i remember we did a lot of our interviews in these tiny little french hotel rooms because he's sort of noticed on the streets and wanted privacy and i remember just like saying no matter how many times you're telling me this story or how many police reports i read that document it I really cannot get my head around how you can take something right under someone's nose with literally sometimes with guards in the room, people in the room. And I like to uh, keep a laptop with me when I'm doing an interview. So Brightweiser, who was so well read, would make references to obscure artists. And I would often type them in, take a look at some of the work, close the laptop and push it to the side. And we're in these tiny little hotel rooms and usually I just put my my digital recorder on and I maintain eye contact a great way to do an interview but every once in a while I'll you know lower my eyes to take a note about like facial expressions or a gesture or things like that so I'm like Stefan you got to explain to me one more time like how is it that you could just take something and no one in a room notices and he sort of stopped the interview he said well Mike did you see what I just did and I'm talking like, uh, uh, if you have not been to France or Europe, I mean, these hotel rooms are like the size of a walk-in closet. I could put my yeah. hand on either side. There's only one chair in the room and I gave it to Brightweiser, a tiny little desk. I'm sitting on like the luggage rack or the corner of the bed, <laughs> you know, and I'm like looking around the room and nothing seems amiss or out of place. But I always love it when criminals like give you the, these yeah. mental challenges. What did I do? And I'm like, um, I look around and I'm like, pause. And I'm like, Stefan, I do not know what you just did. And he stood up and he turned around and he lifted up his shirt and my laptop computer was in the waistband of his pants at the small of his back. And it was like literally right under my nose. I must have lowered my eyes for maybe a few seconds to take a note. And at that moment, he stood up, took the computer, put it in his back, 
straightened out his shirt and sat right back down as if nothing had happened. And this just, it happened to me during an interview. And after that, I was like, I got it in a visceral way. So how did he get caught? Well, he likes to blame Anne Catherine Kleinkaus, his girlfriend. She, as I mentioned, did not have a, I don't think she really had a criminal tendency. She really liked the Bonnie and Clyde aspect of it. She liked the eroticism, I think, of it. She, who wouldn't like sleeping in a bedroom surrounded by $2 billion yeah. worth of magnificent treasures? Um, but she became, incre- as the crimes mounted, like, I think she thought, like, that's enough. That's, an- that's definitely enough. She and was her- done. <laughs> <laughs> she was done. And her, you know, his, uh, you know, and her boyfriend, Stefan Breitweiser, the art thief, just was not only was he not stopping, he was only speeding up. He was going faster and faster. And she felt like, you know, not uh, entwined with him. Like if she didn't go and stand on lookout, then it was increasingly the chances that he would get caught. And if he gets caught, she gets caught because she's sleeping in the room with all this stuff. So she got increasingly nervous and she knew she couldn't stop him. Um, she felt like she still loved him. She didn't want to break up with him, although there was always like right there. So she's like, listen, you have to do me a favor. You have to. He wasn't even wearing like gloves. He was leaving fingerprints on the scene. She's like, listen, from now on, you have to wear surgical gloves and you have to wipe off, you know, prints or your even footprints. If you stand on a chair, sometimes you could stand on chairs in a, in a gallery to unhook something high up on the wall, etc. So he agreed to her rules. And then she started distancing herself from the crimes where she would not participate in many of them. And he did them solo. And he comes home one day with a beautiful bugle, a trumpet from the 1700s stole from the Wagner Museum in Switzerland from the uh, composer Wagner who lived there and owned this bugle. So this was Wagner's bugle. Wagner's bugle. Oh my God. And she says, and Anne Catherine, he starts telling, you know, his tale of daring do to Anne Catherine. And at this point she's getting a little sick of it. And she's, she stops him and says, did you wear gloves? And he says, oh, Anne Catherine, I'm so sorry. I needed full dexterity. And she like blows a gasket. She's like, that's my, I asked you to obey a few simple rules and you didn't do that. And she freaks out and he's like, listen, I'll make it right. I'm going to go back to the museum and erase the fingerprints. Oh, now, for heaven's sakes. Right. So literally he and his girlfriend drive back to the museum. And it's like one of the first times in his life that he's going into a museum, not to steal, steal something, but to erase their fingerprints and the return trip. The one time he's not going to steal, the person working at the front desk notices like it. I, there was someone wearing that jacket the day that bugle was stolen, which was just the day before. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a guy in the same jacket calls the police and he gets arrested. So it was like this weird moment where he kind of broke his pattern and wasn't even stealing. And of course, it's his girlfriend's fault for being so cautious. Uh, but that is how he got caught, which was not any genius police detective it was just going to the scene back returning to the scene of the crime but so now they have him on the whole bugle thing but they have not discovered that this is the man who's been stealing all these other pieces of art is that not correct so what happens is he gets arrested but the police that arrest him in switzerland where the wagner museum is don't know that he actually is with his girlfriend she manages to leave the museum unarrested and drive back home Now, this is a very interesting moment where he is brought to jail for stealing this bugle. One crime is what he thinks. So he wants to do anything he can to avoid the police going 
to his house. Meanwhile, Anne Catherine, she's driving home from the museum, I'm sure, in a massive state of panic. Oh my God, my boyfriend just got busted. This means I'm gonna get busted. We're gonna go to we're gonna go to jail for the rest of our lives. She drives back. She's living with Brightweiser in the attic of his mother's house. And I think this is to the now in this part I have to tell you, we've been very cautious about everything being true. This part there's a couple of spots that I'm not entirely sure. I've pieced together the best I could by police reports, Breitweiser's own words, et cetera. But there's a few beats in this story that I might not be accurate. I just want to give that warning. But the general chain of events is certainly correct. So she drives home back to the house he was sharing. The mother's there. He's like, uh, huh, your son just got arrested for stealing a work of art. And by the way, we got $2 billion worth of art in the attic. The police are going to be here. We're all effed and mm -hmm. we're all going to jail. So you can only imagine oh. hearing that. I got three children. I was like, I, I, I won't even know what to do. But I can see a certain part of this. So now let's just change the scenario a little bit. This is the tragedy. This to uh, me is like, this kills uh, me. Uh, okay, say you're son is a drug dealer and the police are coming and you're a mother who loves their child and wants to protect him and you are going to flush that stuff down it, the toilet it might not be the worst decision in the world to flush this get rid of the evidence however when you're talking about two billion dollars worth of priceless it's not like there's two of these paintings there's one that have ever okay. existed I some can't. of them have hung in museums since the renaissance you know since for centuries hundreds that untouched these are incredibly valuable unique one-of-a-kind creations that all of us can see by paying a small admission fee like all of humanity is basically the victim the mother decides to essentially do the equivalent of flushing it down the toilet. I would like to leave a few things mysterious, but all we can say is that she did the absolute opposite of what one should do. One should return all the works of art. In, they were in pristine condition. Breitweiser was so anal about maintaining like humidity in his room, light and he would dust them. He would not let direct sunlight touch them. He tried to keep them as if they were. He literally felt he kept them at least in as good a shape as they were in museums, if not better, he said. And then the mother decides to get rid of it all in the most horrific way imaginable. And so Breitweiser stole 60 nine Renaissance paintings among the several hundred objects he took. And this rumor started that the mother took them and fed each painting into the garbage disposal. Now, first of all, the vast majority of the paintings he stole were not painted on canvas, but on wood. So let's just oh, think about this for a second. Okay. You really, yeah, you can't really put a painting down to the garbage disposal. That's number one. And do one. they even have garbage disposals in France? That's I mean, that, two, right? Because that's not. such an American suburban thing. They do, absolutely do not. Okay. They barely have air conditioning. They don't even that's have garbage disposals. Good, uh, good uh, uh, reasoning there. Anna. Okay. Uh, yeah. So that is completely false. I mean, normally I don't give away that much stuff, but if your readers are really interested, so what she does instead is, I was going to say worse, but really, I mean, garbage oh, disposal is bad. But that's a great way to get caught too, because first of all, no garbage disposal. You know, and then they said, oh, she just threw them in the garbage, but that is not what she did. She basically, well, all the silver pieces she oh. took and put them in her car and drove out to basically a river and tossed everything in the water. 
One of them wasn't tossed far enough and something glinted up through the sunlight and a, a passerby saw something and like came with a telescoping rake and like pulled out this amazing 17th century chalice. And that sort of led to the finding of that. But as for the 69 priceless Renaissance paintings worth millions, hundreds of millions, maybe billions of dollars, I made a big pile of all these paintings, most of which remember on wood, in the woods and sparked a lighter. Oh. oh my gosh. Did they retrieve anything other than that chalice? They retrieved about the hundred, uh, the, the pieces in silver, more than a hundred pieces that were put in a canal. Never, no painting survived. But they got some of the silver, not They got the some of the silver and restored oh it and put it back goodness. in the museum and some of the ivory, but not any, the most valuable things were gone forever. So it's like this, this person who pretended to love art more than exactly. anything in the world. It was really the reason. That was garbage. That, so, okay. So explain this to me. Was Stefan mad at his mother for burning all this stuff <laughs> or he just didn't care? He was, pre no, he was practically suicidal. He was in jail when this all happened and found out it took a long time for him to figure out what had happened to the works of art. The police thought maybe he had this like sort of deal. If I get arrested, you hide them here because they came and raided the house and ran up to this attic expecting to see all these hundreds of works of art. And they saw nothing, mm. nothing in this room except for a four poster bed and freshly painted walls, not even a, a picture hook in it. And they were like, you must know where these works are. And he was like, I swear I do not. And it was true that he had no contingency plan and not a single, so you mentioned he was arrested in 2001, that's 22 years ago. All the statute of limitations have expired. If there were any works of art remaining, they would, I mean, basically he could parade the street with them, uh, never have any been seen again. What, he, what, he, what happened is they all were destroyed. So it's like this crazy, yeah, so he was completely distraught. He was put on suicide watch and uh yeah anything that you should have done the mother did the opposite not that she's the real criminal but she's definitely not faultless and and everyone mm -hmm. you know she gets in trouble he gets in trouble and catherine makes a beautifully sort of brilliant escape but uh we you know all the everything sort of explained you know the second half of the book is as startling as the first half where you're stealing and stealing and stealing two billion what's gonna happen and then you can't even believe what happens and then how does it all unwind so have yeah th this is a great crime story i mean this is really brilliant the detail the detail you're the the level of explanation it's like oh my god it's a beautiful fabric you know this is the stuff that i love to hear it's just fascinating so was there any justice here obviously the artworks were lost so there can never be justice here that's a conversation we always have about what does justice look like and so did anyone do any reasonable amount of time for the level of this crime i mean in a word no, no. Now, this seems like a very complicated, long story, but I, I want to tell you, just having three children and a short attention span and being no. born <laughs> you and bred <laughs> that this book is 200 pages. Like, you can read this thing on one medium-sized airplane flight. This is not a bar, a big doorstopper of a of Russian novels type of thing. This is just like we. I like to get to. I like. I like to be taken away on a ride. And I, you know, how you feel about Brightwise. I don't tell. I, I don't like it when an author tells you how to feel. Love him, hate him, and mostly I'm very dis disappointed by him. But sometimes I'm like I can't help but be impressed. I mean, mm -hmm. I love going to museums. Museums are one of the great things in society. That is a society that's filled with problems. And Brightwise was basically like a cancer on the one place that we can all trust each other now he did 
laws have changed some of them because of Breitweiser since his arrest. But the the truth of the matter is I talked about how he was never violent. Not only was he never violent, nobody even so much as experienced fear during his heist. This wasn't like the Gardner thieves breaking in and, Mm -hmm. and attacking people and tying them to pipes in the basement. That's terrorizing. So the problem is in the law, especially in Europe, you know, if if you steal like the Mona Lisa without anybody knowing, that's worse. I mean, that's better in the eyes of the law, like a priceless work of art. Like if you steal a chocolate bar at gunpoint, that's worse uh, than stealing the Mona Lisa. The Does, price doesn't come into effect. Now, they have made these sort of like cultural treasures laws that, it, but they was too late for Breitweiser. See, he spent less than three years in prison for one of the greatest art thieving sprees of all time because he was non-violent and there was just nothing much that the state could do to like increase his sentence because he never brandished a weapon, never once, never threatened anyone. He carried a Swiss army knife, never threatened anybody with his little tiny blade, you know, and so that he was, it's almost like a travesty. And it's also another, like if your head sort of feels like exploding both by the audacity of the crime and then the the denouement, the the reaction to, to the crash, it's, it is one of those like, oh my gosh, I, uh, truth is stranger than fiction and also really more frustrating than fiction too. You want this like satisfying, he goes to jail for life and they throw away the key, but that's not what happens. So Breitweiser in the end, everything falls apart in his life, including all of his expressions of like how much he's just an esthete, someone who's just in love with works of art because everything does get destroyed. And then the moment that he's let out of jail, when you think, oh my gosh, you barely served a long sentence. You are such a lucky person. You should go get your S together and uh, live a normal life. No, no, he starts stealing works of art yet again and hanging them on his wall. And it seems like an endless cycle. And it's sort of is a, it's a sad ending, but it's also true and poignant. And I do, you know, as a true journalist, I do love story, the true stories. The fact that, mm-hmm. I mean, I want the reader who approaches this book to not forget that this really happened. It feels like some sort of crazy movie, but the fact that it actually happened gives it this um, extra echo that is just like heartrending. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's why, you know, we really want to know the details of a case and and how criminals trip up, how they're caught, you know, the story. And it's almost the fairy tale that they tell about themselves to make themselves so interesting and the lies that human beings tell themselves to get away with bad behavior. You know, right. whether that's on a small scale, <laughs> walking into the local bar, you know, <laughs> or you think you're this great art thief, which you are, but at the end of the day, you are a freaking thief. Um, so what happened to Mama? That's what right. I want to know. You, know. you know, I was just about to say, you know, one of the, I mean, just, just think about the first word of your podcast name, true. And it just makes all the difference in the world. Like if this was a work of fiction, then you, then you won't feel in your heart, oh, no real works were destroyed, just imaginary works. So it's like, it's like uh, the fact that these were real, true paintings that were really destroyed, like true, true. I mean, if, if it was like 
fake crime podcast or fake crime daily it would be no not interesting at all so really I, I i like the fact that we touched on this a few times during our conversation great conversation by the way you are Thanks. kind of an amazing like i don't want to be interrogated by you if i ever commit a crime i would just confess right away i'll um, write you a handwritten note <laughs> So uh, now that you got me, now that you got me singing like a, you know, like a, you know, I'm, I'm trying to avoid my jail time. Um, so the mother, so the girlfriend, fascinatingly, kind of gets away with everything thanks to Brightweiser, who sort of like says, "Oh, she didn't know what I was doing. She wasn't there." You know, she sort of makes these crazy excuses. The mother leads that oh i was just trying to take care of such a difficult son uh you know i was just i was just you know trying to be protective as a mother anyway they lie their way through court the only weirdly enough again without getting into too much detail weirdly enough the only one who's honest during their trials is the thief himself brightweiser who gets you know significant jail time certainly not what he deserved and the other two basically skate off and Catherine almost scot free the mother just a few months uh, in trouble. But uh, again, the rest of us, the rest of the world, the true victims will never be able to see uh, these works of art again. Wow. What a great story, Michael. I mean, it's Ooh. a fascinating case. And, and he, what I love is we're not just talking about the case. We're talking about the people and how you came to understand the details of this case, because this isn't as simple as just reporting the facts that were in court or in a police report. There's so much, it's the narrative of this crime that to me is unbelievably fascinating. And, and you know, you're so passionate. You can tell you like, you love every nibble, every little crumb of this because it's just woven so tightly and beautifully. Wow, it has been such a pleasure. So thank much fun so, talking to you. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, I mean, I I like true crime, and this is like one of those just like completely subverts all the expected sort of beats of a of a story. Like you you think someone's gonna be you know he he's 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 stealing with like passion and nonviolence, and yet everything yet at the worst possible ending. And so I do I do I speak passionately. I don't in case you're listening and thinking that I'm somehow. Uh, supporting Brightweiser. Oh, no, I don't think so. Just, it's just the story itself that that I, I'm carried away by, but Brightweiser's behavior is odious. And, he's uh, a you crook. Know, he's a crook, but he's also kind of a fascinating one. He really, truly, truly did not try and profit financially, although he had this theory amongst all of his crazy theories that beauty, and this is maybe something we can all take home with us, the true currency of the world isn't cash, he felt beauty and the person who he I must mean, have gotten I, that from anna wintour come on that <laughs> sounds like something anna wintour would say oh he's a I funny that, one but the person who has the most beauty in their lives is the richest he felt he felt like he yeah. often told me he said when you know he would he'd be unemployed or you know waiting tables at a pizza place but he felt like a, the you know like a king and literally literally lived inside of a treasure chest with the girlfriend that he loved so there's like a love story through here and and just craziness from start to finish. Before we go, Michael, there's just one thing. I'm wondering what the reaction has been because, you know, there is there are a lot of mixed feelings about artwork hanging in museums and the true origin of these pieces, how they were obtained, most often the spoils of wars, stolen. I mean, it is something that we're constantly dealing with now. And I'm wondering if there was some reaction to him where it's like, well, you know what, these things were all stolen from someone else. And not that it was Robin Hood in the sense because he didn't share with anyone else. I'm just curious what the reaction has been. 
Well, this is going to be, you know, this is, again, you've just touched on a quite complicated subject that we will have to spend a whole nother show talking about. But briefly, this is also something that Breitweiser himself said. Now, I am not going to come down on one side or the other of this, except the fact to say that Breitweiser is truly crazy, but also at the same time, not completely wrong. For example, one thing Breitweiser said to me, the first public museum ever to open is the British Museum in London, opened in 1760. Let's just talk about the most famous items in the British Museum. Number one, the stolen Rosetta from Egypt, Stone. right? The Rosetta Stone, everything stolen. stolen from Egypt, right? Benin bronzes stolen out of Africa and the Elgin marble stolen right off the Parthenon in Greece. Like those yeah. are the, like the most famous things in the British Museum. Now, in a weird way, art and art crime are inextricably linked and who owns what like yes. you can say and not be completely wrong that doesn't give you the right to commit crimes like this that everyone as brightweiser said in the art world is a thief in some way and he's just a collector with an unorthodox acquisition style he's no different than anyone else which is bs but not entirely BS. And so this is a very, and I kind of love that the entire book, the entire story occupies some morally gray area. And that is where true, true crime aficionados like to wallow, don't we? It's like, what is right and what is wrong? And where does passion come into play? And is everyone really a thief in all of those issues that you brought up? I love it. The morally gray. I'm going to steal that from you. The morally gray. I'm writing it down right now. I'm writing. Uh, Michael, I'm writing it. More, wait a minute. I mean, I've been stealing uh, great phrases from you as well, Anna. So, uh... Morally gray. That he was French. I, that's my gift yeah. to you. <laughs> he was acting like a Frenchman. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Michael, this has been so much fun. Tell us where people can either follow you, get your book, all that good stuff. The book is called, non-complicatedly, The Art Thief. And you could buy it wherever you buy your books, whether it's online or at your bookstore. My name is Mike Finkel. You could, Michael Finkel for, uh, if you really want to be formal. If your parents and, are listening. <laughs> <laughs> did you just read my mind? Precisely that. And uh, I got my website at mikefinkel.com, michaelfinkel.com. They bring you to the same spot. Um, I would be honored if anyone uh, cares to pick up the book. And I respond to all letters written to me you can contact me through my website good bad or indifferent but you know what i like i like uh i I like a book that doesn't talk down to me or tell me what to think and so what i like to do in my books is put all the facts out good bad ugly fantastic and let the reader be the juror and so anybody who reads the book if you feel like letting me know what you felt about brightweiser like respect hatred uh, it's just kind of curious to me what, what what did you come up with as a reader and what did you think about some of the surprises that i left out of this conversation so that that's mm. it thank you very much well you're going to love our youtube community because when this is released on youtube we have a very vibrant active and vocal group uh always sharing opinions thoughts ideas um i love this group so i hope you join us because i like to respond a lot to them as well because i learn a lot or sometimes i miss something it's like oh why didn't i think of that you know so it's it's really great um michael it has been a pleasure Uh, this has been a special edition of true crime daily the podcast i'm your host anna garcia and as we always say at the end of the show don't do crime